Hello everyone! Welcome to Oral Max Facts. This is Maria McBarry, and here with me today is my partner, Dr. Riddhi Patel. Hello! Hi! You had a fascinating discussion with Dr. Harper on laryngospasm. Yes, I did. In fact, um, you know, I was thinking about you, Miriam. It's really not a party until you're there. So, welcome to Laryngospasm Part 2. Uh, thank you. I listened to it and I was like, wow, there's so many grounds was covered. So it's definitely one of those episodes that I will be listening to it more than once to really capture all its pearls. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know what? It's just one of those things that comes with so many years of experience. And that was exactly why I wanted to get Dr. Harper on the show to talk about it. And for someone like him who's been practicing for 30 plus years and um, is very knowledgeable, up to date, always teaching so involved in academics you know just for someone like him to tell us how to proceed in a situation like that is so valuable yeah it's definitely you can't get that level of art and you know just having that perception of where you need to end up as mm-hmm, far as competency absolutely. from just reading you know he just like was flowing through everything i can't wait to do more yeah. talks with him it's gonna be amazing i think so it will be fun and um maybe i will be there you know, if, if 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 general surgery ever finishes and <laughs> I can see the day of the light, <laughs> the light of the day. Okay. You will, Miriam. All right. One so day. you want to start with some questions to follow up on that talk? Yeah, I was inspired. So I just like went through all the questions uh, on the release uh, on topic of laryngospasm. So and I wanted to kind of share it with everyone. So we know the practical and also some of the written board stuff that uh, they might be asking us later on. Okay, our first question, which of the following medication is the least appropriate agent when considering intubation general anesthesia for the patient at risk of laryngospasm? Your options are A, desflurane, B, methohexatol, C, bicuronium, or D, nitrous oxide? Okay, so I'm going to go with methohexatol as an induction agent that can precipitate into laryngospasm and bronchospasm in airways already irritated by chronic disease. And I think Dr. Harper kind of talked about it. Right. I don't know where in the talk it was, but if you paid attention, he did talk about the pump versus bump technique where, you know, he talked about how during residency they used to use barbiturates a lot, which we don't use anymore, and that tends to cause more laryngospasm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was a question not so long ago. I feel like some of our question doesn't get updated with the current practices. Yeah, in that right. <laughs> but I just also want to talk about dysfluorine because it kind of has the opposite effect. It's a potent bronchodilator, uh, but at the same time, it could be an airway irritant. Mm-hmm. It could cause coughing and increase uh, sympathetic tones. So it is still not desirable for patients with chronic bronchitis either. What about vicuronium? Vicuronium is a non-depolarizing muscle relaxant, and it actually doesn't have a tendency to release any histamine. And that's a good thing. Because it doesn't release histamine, it doesn't really affect bronchia. All right, so on to our next question. A 26-year-old male that weighs 80 kilograms and he's 6 foot tall, sedated with midazolam 5 milligrams, a fentanyl of 100 micrograms, followed by methohexatol of 90 milligrams. The patient's heart rate increases from 88 to 102 beats per minute, and his oxygen saturation drops from 98% to 
the patient is making ventilatory efforts with respiratory noises. The desaturation is most likely secondary to a bronchospasm, b hypoxic respiratory depression, c laryngospasm, or d supraglottic obstruction. The answer. So, as Dr. Harper also mentioned in his lecture, most anesthetics depress the hypercapnic mm -hmm. and hypoxic respiratory drive. With that, we have a diminished upper airway tone and kind of a blunt upper airway reflexes, you know, the typical cough and the ways that while we are awake, we protect our mm -hmm. airway. So this patient is making ventilatory efforts. So, and I'm, there are some respiratory noises. That makes me feel like it's more of a superglottic obstructions. Yeah, the, um, his tongue is just falling back, probably why we hear the respiratory noises. Something that Dr. Harper mentioned as he was talking about definition of laryngospasm or, you know, whenever you suspect, what do you do? Well, he said the first thing you want to do is you want to make sure it's not just supraglottic obstruction um, that you can just resolve pretty easily rather than just jumping into laryngospasm first thing. So this is one of those cases. Also with laryngospasm, if it was indeed a partial laryngospasm, you're probably more likely to see a tracheal tug or suprasternal retraction type symptoms. Here, the patient is clearly making ventilatory efforts, so this is more likely to be a supraglottic obstruction. Also, with the heart rate increasing from 88 to 102, could just be from methahexatol. Yeah, and you know, Dr. Harper, what I was really in it, important, I think, that he mentioned it very eloquently in his lecture was his very systematic approach towards this very stressful situation. And you know, he went through this telling us that, of course, with sedation, we have a suppressed upper airway tone and blunt upper airway re reflexes. And so, of course, we always have to think about the most common thing first and do the ABCs of, you know, lifting the chin and the, taking the throat back out. And those things could actually improve instead of us, you know, freaking out about it in the clinic as residents. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Okay. All right. On to our next question. During surgical removal of a lower third molar under sedation using midazolam, fentanyl, and propofol, your patient coughs and begins to have stridorous breath sounds, which leads to absent breath sounds. The throat pack is removed and a jaw thrust is attempted without improvement in air exchange. Chest movement continues. What is the most likely diagnosis? A allergic reaction, B, bronchospasm, C, laryngospasm, or D, upper airway obstruction? That was like a perfect follow-up question to our previous one. I guess in this case, I kind of think about laryngospasm be higher in my differential diagnosis than any of the other stuff. I mean, definitely not the allergic reaction. In a board question, it's easy to like rule that out. But I think laryngospasm will be my first choice. Yeah, and I agree. Honestly, this is one of the things that we talked about as well. Um, but the first thing, you know, they tried uh, doing jaw thrust maneuver and throat pack was removed and there's still no airway exchange. So now you're Im immediately thinking, okay, you know, there's this laryngospasm. spasm. I need to move on to the next thing. I don't see any chest movement. You're going to grab your ambu bag and start ventilating patient. Yeah, uh, that's right. I think another important thing to note from a pathophysiology of laryngospasm that the initial presentation of the cough following by those mastritis mm -hmm. sounds, striders. yeah, striders. right, yeah, it's kind of suggestive that we have already irritated the the vocal cords and you know it potentially could lead to uh, more 
more uh, problematic situations. Yeah, absolutely. I was always told, like, always have your suction set up. Like, in no way you should have a separate suction ready to always clean the clean the to mouth, even if you're operating, you know, mm-hmm. different parts of the always body. Always be suction ready. Suction ready. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a less of an issue for oral maxillofacial surgeons because we always have a suction. But like, if you're doing, you know, removing bone from the head. Oh my and... gosh, I can't tell you. Yes, we always have suction, but there will be times when your canister's full and your assistants haven't changed it out in between cases. And you're like, I need suction now. Get the canister now. You know, like it. It just gets stressful. <laughs> And then everybody loses. Right. They're like, they don't know where the canister. Everything you goes down. And you start yelling. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's yelling is definitely not helpful, but it definitely happens very quickly. You are you're still the boss. You drive it, so you gotta make sure that everything's yeah. ready to go yeah. before your cases start. Okay. All right. Next question: A 28 year old patient suffers a prolonged ringospasm in your office. When you break the spasm through the use of positive pressure oxygen and succinylcholine, the patient is still somewhat somnolent and difficult to arouse. His respiratory rate is 16 per minute, and there are crackles heard throughout his lung field, especially near the bases. At this point, the patient will likely require A. Bronchial alkalization B. Positive and expiratory ventilation C. Pleurocentesis or D, antibiotics? I'm going to go with D is definitely not the answer. <laughs> like, give me one gram of Zosan, please, now. <laughs> um, so, um, but all joking aside, I'm going to go with positive and expiratory ventilation. Dr. Herper really harped on it in, uh, in his algorithm of laryngospasm. Right, Pope. Right, we talked about post-obstructive pulmonary edema, and that's basically what we are seeing here. So, as Dr. Harper mentioned, it's the this po- secondary pulmonary edema is from the negative alveolar pressure of expanding diaphragm against the closed glottis. You mean glottis? <laughs> of course, glottis. <laughs> Everything's so poetic. <laughs> Yeah, so poetic, Gladys. You gotta rhyme. If it doesn't rhyme, you know, <laughs> the spelling is wrong. Uh, okay, so this, as, as Dr. Harbour mentioned, the pathophysiology of developing secondary pulmonary edema is a result of negative alveolar pressure of an expanding diaphragm against a closed glottis. So you have ex- or transitate, actually, not an exudate. Exactly. Transiting. Okay. Okay. Let's uh, let's move on to the next case. I'm uh, last but not least. Last but not least. Okay. Thirty minutes after extubating a six-year-old asthmatic male patient in your office, you notice the child to be in respiratory distress, characterized by high-pitched, coarse sounds occurring during inspiration. What is the most likely diagnosis and treatment? A Partial laryngospasm initially managed with positive pressure ventilation. B. Bronchospasm initially managed with albuterol inhaler. C. Post-extubation strider initially managed with racemic epinephrine. Or D. Post-obstructive pulmonary edema initially managed with supplemental oxygen. What do you think, Miriam? Uh, this is a like, kind of scary case. You know, you have a young kid, which is already a 
risk factor, asthmatic patient, which is another risk factor, and you're also doing it in your office, that's that's uh, that's very scary case to begin with. But as far as the diagnosis and treatment, I will go with C, post-extubation strider initially managed with the epinephrine. Post-extubation strider usually results from laryngeal inflammation, which reduces the airway dimension. Especially in a young child, they may have secondary irritation from the endotracheal tube impinging on the narrowest part of the airway, being the crackled cartilage. Maneuvers to avoid those kind of irritation could be cuffless tube and to ensure that there is an air leak around the tube. Avoiding patient's head movement during surgery, which can cause displacement of tube either superiorly causing extubation or inferiorly irritating the mucosa, probably not a good thing. For this case, you know, they, they had a young patient, it was asthmatic, but at least they intubated. You know, they, you know, intubation is typically the safest way of protecting the airway, some people would argue, but extubation could also lead you to a tricky situation. So you're not out of the woods just because you intubated someone. Mm-hmm. Right. And aerosolized 2.25% of racemic epinephrine can produce mucosal vasoconstriction and decrease the laryngeal edema which is helpful, yeah. especially with someone with a history of asthma, could develop bronchospastic event. Post-bronchospasm would most likely demonstrate excretory disease. Yeah, exactly. And like Dr. Harper said, one of the points I took away from the lecture was that how he has a separate kit for cases that he anticipates mm-hmm. problem. Because, you know, trying to get this epinephrine set up while you have exhibited, you know, a six-year-old and you, you're leading to all this de- desaturation and you even have less than less time than a typical adult. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's all about being ready and going over it, which is kind of why we wanted to really harp on this topic and keep talking about it. So that's our wrap up for laryngospasm from clinical to retin boards. So we hope that you guys took a few points out of this. And with Dr. Harper's le- lecture, I highly recommend listening to it more than once because there's a lot to take away from that lecture. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you guys for joining us again. We hope this session was helpful for you. We are actually excited to bring more topics in anesthesia complications followed by medical comorbidities and how to manage anesthesia with different medical conditions. So we hope you enjoyed this series of our lectures. Make sure to give us five-star reviews and follow us on Oral Max Facts on Instagram and Facebook. Please let us know what you think, and we are here for you guys, and we want to make this productive for you. So your opinion matters to us. Thank you. Until next time. Bye. Bye.